Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us by your spirit to receive this as what it is, the word of the Lord, given not only for these Hebrew Christians in the first century, but for your church in every age. Cause us to hear the instruction that your spirit is giving to us that we ought not covet, but be content. That we would understand our duty in contentment and our delight that you are God with us. And in you, we have everything we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you're aware the first century Christians suffered under the hand of an oppressive government that actually outlawed their practice of worship. Now, they weren't categorically banned from worshiping Jesus. They could worship him if they would just also say that Caesar is Lord. So there was, if you will, a kind of freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. The freedom of religion was this. You can keep your religion, but you also must acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, so you must worship him too. Well, the Christians knew they could not do that, and thus they were outlawed, if you will, as a religion. If they would not bow the knee to Caesar, then their Christian religion would be illegal, and the Christians would not bow. Thus they were persecuted. They were killed. They were imprisoned. Often when Christians were imprisoned, we learn, for example, in Hebrews 10, that other Christians would go to visit them in prison and help with their needs. When you were in a Roman prison, they didn't provide you with three meals a day and a library and a college degree and whatever, right? Not what happened. When you were in a Roman prison, you had no food, you had no clothes, you had no anything unless someone provided it for you. And so the Christians would go and provide this for them. And while they were there providing this for them, their neighbors would report them. And their neighbors would report them and their houses would be sacked and their possessions would be taken. Listen, even in the plagues that hit the Roman Empire, which, by the way, the churches always struggle with plagues throughout the centuries, even in the plagues, the unbelievers would flee a particular city and they would leave behind their sick loved ones, their sick family members and friends, in the midst of plagues, they would leave them behind and the Christians would not flee with them. The Christians would stay in the municipality and they would take care of the sick people, even the unbelievers, at threat to their own lives and often would get sick and die only to have some of those neighbors they care for turn them into the authorities for their worship and then face arrest. It got so intense that Nero, a Caesar in the 60s A.D., would actually wrap Christians in candle wax and burn them in his garden as candles. These Christians were often dispersed due to persecution. We see that at the very beginning of Acts, in fact, under the persecution launched by the man who would become the Apostle Paul. 
as the Christians are dispersed from the Jerusalem church due to persecution. They were fleeing to various parts of the Roman Empire, and during their flee there, they were being hunted. They had to walk away from everything. Their home, their possessions, their nations, their families, their cultures, their languages. They had to walk away from everything for their illegal practice of gathering to worship the Lord Jesus and proclaiming his name to unbelievers. In the face of conditions like these, the Hebrew Christians are receiving this letter. I put that out there so you understand the conditions in which they are receiving this letter. And they're specifically receiving this command. Imagine in the midst of all of that receiving this command. Verse 5, Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Here we are told that they're given a duty and a delight. Be content with what you have. That's their duty. Be content with what you have. Duty. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's their delight. So we're going to look at those two points today. Our duty in verse 5a, the first part. Keep your life free from the love of money. and Be content with what you have. You might say 5a and b there. And then our delight. The rest of that verse through verse 6. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's look first at our duty. I'm going to sum it up this way. Don't covet. Be content. Look at Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from love of money. Notice that. Keep your life free from love of money. That's a negative command. Don't do something. Don't love money. There's a negative part of the command. And notice the positive part of the command. And be content with what you have. So I want to look first at the negative part. Keep your life free from love money. And then the positive part. Be content with what you have. What does it mean to keep your life free from the love of money? This is talking about, to keep your life free, this word here is talking about a habit of the heart and a habit of the mind. And it's speaking to your general way of life let your life be free it's speaking to both your frame of mind and your meditation of your heart and your behavior in your daily actions this greek word do not be lovers of money so you know it's a compound word with a negation at the beginning negates this word so it's the word lovers of money with a negation and it's actually lovers of silver or money it's the way it's translated It's used twice in the New Testament. The other time it's used in a negated sense. Do not be lovers of money is in 1 Timothy 3.3 when it says the elder is to not be a lover of money. Someone who is an elder in a church should not be a lover of money. It's used there. It's used in the opposite manner. In other words, in the sense of no negation. Don't be a lover of money when it says certain people are lovers of money. For example, in Luke 16.14, Luke tells us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. In 2 Timothy 3, 2, we're told that in latter times, there will be those who come who are lovers of self and lovers of money. You're to guard your heart and mind from a love of money. As Christians, you should never be known. should never be known as a lover of money. There's another way to say, keep your life free from the love of money. We can say it the way it's stated in the Ten Commandments, and I think probably in the King James Version. 
Do not covet. You guys know the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. But what does it mean to covet? Here's how John Owen defined coveting. Covetousness is an inordinate desire with a suitable endeavor or pursuit after the enjoyment of more riches than we have or than God is pleased to give to us. Proceeding from an undue valuation of them, you hold the value of riches too high or an undue love of them. As we saw last week, in almost every passage where sexual immorality is mentioned, we went through several passages in the New Testament where sexual immorality is mentioned and condemned, covetousness is also mentioned in those passages. It seems to come as a kind of package deal. You guys know this from life. Most people stumble over one of two things, sexual morality or covetousness. They tend to eat us alive from the inside out. They corrupt our minds. Look at Colossians 3, 5. I'll give you one example from last week. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Now notice this next phrase about covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Have you heard that? Covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is the rejection of God himself. Few things debase the minds of men more than covetousness. Where the sin of covetousness is habitual and unrepentant, there is no grace of faith there. There's only the corrupted mind of unbelief. Sovereign grace being lovers of money will destroy your faith and bring about apostasy. Keep your hand in Hebrews 13 and look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Notice what he's saying. Your desire to be rich, your covetousness, starts to corrupt you in a variety of ways. Harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I want you to hear this. It's a root of all kinds of evils. When you have a particular kind of root, that root grows and bears a particular kind of fruit. And what he's saying is, the love of money is a kind of root in your heart that bears all kinds of wicked fruit in your lives. It's a root of all kinds of evils. Then it says, it is through this craving, this covetous craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. To covet fundamentally, is to reject the Lord's goodness and the Lord's wisdom. It's always been this way. Discontentment in God's wise provision is a sin Satan suggests at the fall. Do you guys know that? That's the sort of opening salvo of Satan, if you will, at the fall. Underneath Satan's lie to Eve is the inference that God is neither good nor wise. Listen, Eve, did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responds, well, no, the Lord said we can eat from all the trees in the garden except for that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We shouldn't eat from that one lest we die. And Satan says, well, look, God's keeping something good from you. Look how good that tree is. See, if God is good, he would not be miserly. He would generously give you everything. If God is wise, 
he would not withhold something from you that is clearly good for you. You can see that this thing that he forbids is good for you, Eve. It's to be desired to make one wise. It's good. Can't you see it? Look, that tree is good for you, and God is neither good nor wise to keep it from you. So negatively, we should not covet. And positively, we should be content. We should be content with the Lord's provision. Look again at Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. First, I want to address what's meant by the phrase, with what you have. Be content with what? With what you have. What does that mean? John Owen rightly says that such things as we have are not things only intended, like be content with your couch and your car and your house or something. It's not just talking about your stuff. It's saying be content in the general state and condition in which we are, whether that's the state and condition of poverty or affliction or persecution or even growing wealth. Be content with what you have. The Hebrew Christians are being told to be content with what they have in a state of persecution, suffering, affliction, the loss of all things. I'm to be content with what I have, with whatever state or condition the Lord has placed me in, I'm to be content. That's what Paul says. Keep your hand in Hebrews 13 and look at Philippians chapter 4. You'll actually get to hear this verse quoted contextually for once. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Paul says, after commenting on how the Philippian church has helped him in his need, he says, not that, verse 11, Philippians 4, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, in whatever circumstance, I have learned I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? He doesn't mean he's going to publish a book with some weird mysteries only he knows. He's going to tell you what it is. What is it? I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. You know what the secret of contentment is? I have Christ who carries me along. That's the secret of contentment. That's what that verse is about. It isn't about like you tattoo it on yourself and Christ is going to help me beat this guy down in the ring. I can do all things. I can win the football championship, whatever. It's about contentment. I can be content. He was content in any state or condition because he has Christ. That's why. So what is Christian contentment then? I'm going to let Jeremiah Burroughs define it for us. He wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's in the Banner of Truth Puritan paperbacks, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's one I would encourage you to pick up and read. Buy that book and read it. It's worth every bit of your time. But listen to how Jeremiah Burroughs defines Christian contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. What does this quiet-hearted person look like? What does it look like to freely submit to and delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition? Maybe it'd be helpful if I start with saying what it doesn't look like. What it doesn't look like. You ready? What contentment or quiet-heartedness doesn't look like? A quiet heart is not someone who's merely quiet externally. 
Burroughs says you can be quiet externally and be a tempest internally. He gives the analogy. It's like, for example, wearing a nice-looking pair of shoes that pinch your feet. It's what your demeanor looks like. A quiet-hearted person and contented person is also not ignorant of their suffering. To be quiet-hearted and content does not mean you're ignorant of your suffering. Christ never called us to deny the cross as a cross. Never told us that. He never said to you, pick up your cross and deny it exists. We're to carry it, not deny it's there. A quiet-hearted and contented person is not necessarily without complaints to God. Because you're quiet-hearted and content doesn't mean you don't complain to the Lord. What do I mean by that? If complaining to the Lord in the midst of difficult circumstances was sin, then both the Psalms and Lamentations would be a real problem in Scripture, wouldn't they? But I want you to hear something about their complaints. Because there is a kind of complaining to God that is sin. There's a kind of complaining to God that is not sin. Their complaints are reposing in God as they trust him in their state, even while asking him for a better estate. So they're not a kind of complaint that dishonors God, doesn't believe in God, that launches into coveting for what they don't have. It's a kind of complaining where they come to the Lord and they say, I trust you, but I don't like this. I don't understand this. And I'd like you to take it away, but I trust you. A quiet-hearted and contented person is not someone who avoids complaints to their godly friends about their estate. It is biblical to share your complaints with your godly friends if you are doing so to receive a seasonable word, to receive prayer and encouragement. If you're doing so just to rail against the Lord, that's sin. Rather, here's what a quiet-hearted person is. They are satisfied that the Lord's provision is enough. They're satisfied the Lord's provision is sufficient. If you're content, you know God is good and wise, and he has given you enough, even if you do not enjoy your estate, and even if you desire a different estate. If you're content, you're not anxious about the present nor the future. You trust that your Father is good and wise. If you're content, you're not looking at your neighbor and coveting their wealth or their better estate in life, whether it's health or children turning out better than your own or a marriage that seems more pleasant than yours or whatever. You're not coveting it. You know that the Father gives you exactly what you need. There's a beautiful picture of the quiet-hearted and contented person in Psalm 131. Look there. It gives you a great illustration or picture of the quiet-hearted and contented person. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In other words, he's not proud or haughty or boastful. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What is it to be a quiet, contented person or a quiet-hearted, contented person? It's to be a person who isn't arrogant enough to think you can tell the Lord how things ought to be, but who rather is like a weaned child with its mother. Folks, I want to drive this to our present moment of prosperity. We live in a culture, and you all know this is not a surprise to anybody in the room. We live in a culture that is incredibly prosperous in two regards. We are incredibly prosperous with regard to health, 
and with regard to wealth. One of my friends who is a world-class historian named Carl Truman, who often says in courses when he's asked, what era would you most want to live in? He says, the present one. Do you have any idea what it was like before anesthesia and painkillers? You don't want to live then. We're a very healthy people overall. We so idolize health that it has had severe repercussions in how we approach a virus in the last year. Second, we are wealthy people, the wealthiest people in the history of the world. Our poor people are wealthy in third world countries. If you haven't been to a third world country to see what poverty looks like, go sometime. We are wealthy, and we hear daily, even hourly, reverberations from every corner that we do not have enough. We need more. We deserve more. Every commercial on TV, in fairness, there are some commercials where it's like, we have a good product at a good price. Fine. But most of the time, it's some guy driving in a car you don't own saying, isn't my life way better than yours? You should own this car. We know it. You need to be younger, fitter, richer, and freer from all discomfort. Your car, your house, your job, your looks, your safety, your health, it's not good enough. It must be better. That woman on TV, she is better looking than you. Buy the product she puts on, and you'll look like that. That guy, he's got a better life than you. Buy the car he drives, whatever. And we just have a constant drive as a culture toward covetousness. You should be discontented with what God has given you. That's just the message we hear again and again and again. We are wealthy in this present world. We do not need more. We need to be content with what we have and ready to share. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 again. See how Paul tells Timothy to instruct the rich in this present world. Paul doesn't say to them, feel guilty that you're wealthy, just so you know. That isn't his message, but he does give them very clear instructions. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, the Lord provided the wealth that you have. He didn't provide it to you so you'd feel guilty. He provided it to you, what? Richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He provided it to you to enjoy it. He also did not provide it to you, however, to find your hope and certainty in it. He provided it to you so that you would know he's the one you should trust. And he goes on to say it, verse 18, they are to do good. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, that wealth that you're enjoying is not truly life. You want to take hold of that which is truly life, then be generous and ready to share, storing up a good foundation for the future, i.e. for your heavenly future, for your eternal future. You cannot love both God and money. You will hate one and serve the other. You can't have two masters. We are to be thankful, generous, and cheerful givers, for we trust the Lord to provide. Now, I want to address a particular kind of discontent that's risen among Christians recently. I'm going to give it my own name, and just hear me out. I'm going to call it blue state discontentment. (laughs) Or maybe a better word for it would be red state covetousness. 
There are Christian people fleeing our state. Now, I want you to hear this. I'm not saying it's wrong to move, so to give this caveat, like last week, I'm not saying all birth control is wrong. Are you saying it's all wrong? We should have as many children as we possibly can? No. So please hear me. I'm going to emphasize this. I'm not saying leaving the state is wrong. I want you to hear my point. There are Christian people fleeing our state with zero sense of whether they have a good church to join on the Christian mission to know Christ and make him known. Zero sense of that. If they leave California, they can be a little richer, a little freer, and a little more comfortable somewhere else. They can stave off the progressive slide into socialism at least a bit longer. And that might all be true. And I'm not saying, please, I'm not saying it's categorically wrong to leave California. It may, in fact, be necessary and wise in some cases to leave California. And there may come a day when I even recommend to every Christian to leave the state if they're able due to persecution. That's happened in the history of the church before. However, what I am saying is that if your choice to leave is driven, listen, if your choice to leave is driven by discontentment with what you have, and if your choice to leave has no regard for Christ's church and your duty to be on mission with his church, then for you, your choice to leave is sin. Friends, can I make a suggestion? Find a good church and build your life around it. For we have no lasting city here. Look at Hebrews 13, 14, which I absolutely promise we will be in next week. For we have no lasting city here, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the eternal city of God, not the temporary comfort of a better city of man. Listen, a good church is harder to find than a nice place to live. The real action, the real blessings in life are not found in a red state. They're found in Christ's church. We're to be content. That's our duty, contentment. Now let's look at our delight. Our delight is that the Lord is with us. Look at Hebrews 13, 5, the last part of it, for. Notice that word, for. It's a little word explaining to you the delight that drives your contentment. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Here is the solid ground upon which your contentment stands. God will never leave us nor forsake us. So we can confidently say, boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Our writer quotes from two Old Testament texts. First, he quotes from Joshua 1, the Lord, when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in doing so, he tells us the nature of the promise that's being given here. And then he quotes from Psalm 118.6, which Mikey read this morning. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me, which tells us the comfort of the promise. So we have the nature of the promise in the first Old Testament quotation and the comfort therein in the second quotation. I want to look at both of those just briefly. First, let's consider the nature of the promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the promise the Lord made to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is about to lead the second generation of Israel into the promised land against their enemies. There were enemies all about. They were going to a new home but the Lord was with them. He would not leave them nor forsake them. It's actually interesting because there are negative particles. May, in Greek, the particles, the negation. What's a better word than particles? Because that's not helpful to anybody, unless you're a real grammar nerd. Negative words. How about that? (laughs) No, not kind of words, right? 
the negative particles are heaped up here for like a kind of strong, emphatic denial. This is the great promise of all Scripture. God is with us. God with us. And the text is being applied to us now. Notice that promise is given to Joshua, but he's saying it's yours too. It belongs to you and to me. He will never leave us. He is present with us. In order for him to never leave us, he must first be with us. And he will never forsake us. In other words, he will help us. He's always been helping us. He's never going to stop helping us. He is by our side. God is ever present with us and God will never abandon us. He is good. He is ever present. He is the God who cannot lie and he has promised to be with us. This promise is grounded in what God is. What is God? His character. He's good, wise, holy, truthful, faithful, gracious, merciful, just, powerful, and ever-present. And the promise is grounded in what He is. Further, the promise that God has committed to us, that He is with us, is our great comfort in the face of any suffering, in the face of any difficulty, in the face of any persecution, in the face of any lack. So you don't lack anything because God is with you, and He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Listen to how John Gill, 18th century British Baptist pastor, applied this promise to us. God will not leave them to themselves, to their own corruptions, which would overpower them, nor to their own strength, which is but weakness, nor to their own wisdom, which is folly, nor to Satan and his temptations, which is an overmatch for them, nor to the world, the frowns and flatteries of it, by which they might be drawn aside. Nor will he leave them destitute of his presence. For though he sometimes hides his face and withdraws himself, yet not wholly nor finally. Nor will he forsake the work of his own hands in them, but will perform it until the day of Christ. He'll not leave or forsake them so as that they shall perish. He'll not forsake them in life, nor at death, nor at judgment. He will not leave nor forsake them. Do you hear the comfort that brings? God's presence with us is our comfort. And that's what I'm driving at is the second part there is the comfort it brings the believer. That's why he continues on in verse 6 and says, because it's true that he's with us and will never leave us nor forsake us, so we can confidently say, we can boldly say, we know we can say this, the Lord is my helper. He's by my side. I need not fear What can man do to me? Did you catch that? You can confidently say that. Christian, in Christ, we have a right to God's covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that promise contains everything you need. As God is the fountain of every good. Thus, we can be content in every circumstance that the Father wisely decrees for us. We can boldly or confidently say, We can charge the hill in battle in this life as Joshua must, for we know God is with us. And we ought to have more confidence than Joshua. Why ought we to have more confidence than Joshua? Because we have received the one who is the yes to all God's promises. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us. They witnessed God's mighty works in the Old Testament. But they merely witnessed his mighty works that were shadowy and typical. 
we witnessed his mighty works in the substance, in the fulfillment, in the coming of Christ, in his life and death and resurrection. I don't know that we stop and think about it enough, Christian. God is on your side. I remember a few years ago, people were arguing over this. Do I want to be on God's side or is God on my side? You guys remember that whole discussion? It was out there in political speak and it drove me insane. I kept wanting to say to people, I know Abraham Lincoln said that I want to be on the Lord's side and blah, 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 but the Lord doesn't really need me on his side. He'll be all right. And I understand what he means. I want to obey God. Good. But the most important thing you can hear is God is on your side. That's the news you need. He is for you. He's for you. He's for you against those who oppress his people. And God's help is both internal, it strengthens our hearts and minds, and external, he opposes our enemies. That's what the incarnation and the cross of Christ yell out to you. God is with you, and God is for you in his Son. He is with you and for you to the degree that he condescended to take humanity to himself and live under the law to seek and save you. He is with you and for you to the degree that he takes the judgment for your sin upon himself and pays for it at the cross. If the Lord would condescend to seek us in this way, why should we ever lack confidence that he is with us and for us and will bring us all the way home? I want you to hear another passage in the context of suffering. Look with me at Romans chapter 8, a passage which I return to often and read to you, but I do so because it's one of those passages that I'm not sure we'll ever understand the weight of until we see the Lord in glory. And maybe even then, we still won't fully comprehend it. Romans 8 verse 31, after he's just talked about our being saved by Christ, he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear that, Christian and be content. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for the fact that you, our Lord, are with us and for us. May we find contentment in you, knowing that having you is enough. Cause us to repent of covetousness, of the love of money, of the unbelief and idolatry that causes us to question your goodness and your wisdom. 
We confess, Lord, that we don't know what you are doing often in life, particularly in the face of suffering. We have no clue. We are creatures. We are dust. But we trust you. We trust that you're good and that you're wise. We see the evidences of your goodness and wisdom in creation, and we see it most expressly in the promise and coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be thankful. May we be content knowing that you're with us and you're for us, and that is enough. In Jesus' name, amen.